You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Well, good. Nice to see everybody and hear everybody talking and saying hi and all those good things, man. I really appreciate that. Uh, grab your Bibles this morning. We've already been in once, so hopefully we've upped our percentage of Bible time in our service. That's what we want to see is, is uh, lots of scripture. And so uh, grab a Bible and take a look at 2 Corinthians. Uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And uh, you guys know, you know how we do things. Um, on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock, we're here going verse by verse through each chapter of scripture and we're in second Corinthians right now. So Wednesday nights are when we're tracking through and trying to get like the full story of what's going on. And that's verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And then on Sundays, we take a, a scripture from the upcoming chapter that we're going to study, and we really focus in on how it gets us to Jesus. That's the purpose of what we're doing on Sunday mornings, is so that we can be encouraged to live out our Christian faith, to understand God's will and purpose for us. We need to connect everything back to Jesus, and so that's what we're doing here as we take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, the big story here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it, it's really appropriate that over the next several weeks, we get to see the Apostle Paul, who has written this letter to the church at Corinth, we get to see him really focus in on sharing his experiences and even, it would seem, his joy in expressing what he has weakness in in his life, persecution that he has experienced, tribulations that he's gone through, all of these things. It would seem over the next couple of weeks as we look through these next couple of chapters that Paul is making a big deal, again, like I say, almost being joyful of the fact that he's experiencing these things and why that's important for us to meditate on and why I think it's appropriate for us in the next couple of weeks is that in several weeks, three, we'll be celebrating Resurrection Sunday. Good Friday, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, Holy Saturday where he was in the tomb, and then on Sunday, resurrection, which is the pinnacle of all Christian worship and the entire foundation of why we can call ourselves Christians. Oftentimes within, within um, American Christianity, Christmas is the big deal, right? because that's the day Jesus was born. And that is amazing. And that story in and of itself is powerful. And of course, it's necessary, but it's become so commercialized that a lot of times we miss the value of Christmas. But I would say that even more important than the arrival of Jesus, although it's, it's you know, degrees, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the example of how Jesus went to the cross... The Bible tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus Christ endured the shame of the cross. I think that point, if we were going to share anything with anybody about our faith in Jesus and why we believe that we have this promise of eternal life and hope, even in the midst of hard things, tribulation, trials, suffering, pain, all of that, why we have hope is because Jesus died and then rose. And so the Apostle Paul here, as he talks about his weaknesses and his pain, my goodness, it's simply the fact that he was copying Jesus. He was imitating the example that Jesus had set 
And then Paul was showing this example to the Corinthians. And then the Corinthians were supposed to take Paul's example and share it to the people in their city, just like you and I. As we hear from Jesus and we follow his example, that's the example that we're, to sp- that we're supposed to set for other people around us. It's called discipleship. We learn from Jesus, from what God tells us in his word. We put those things into practice. We learn from other Christians who are more mature than us and holier than us, and we follow their example, how it is that they stay connected to the example of Jesus, and then we set that example for others. And so here we come in chapter, come to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we come to what I've been talking about our entire time studying through this letter has been the subtext of what Paul has been teaching the church, even in his correction of them, even in his declarations of his love for them. He has been talking to them with this sort of in the background all along, which is to say that we see God's strength in our weakness. We see God's strength in our weakness. Far too often our human condition puts us in the position of trying to somehow prove to God that we are worthy of his love. That somehow in the face of trials and hardships in life, that we somehow have the ability to screw up the courage or the intestinal fortitude or the strength of our own character to do what is right and good. And the truth is, is that apart from Christ, the word tells us, we can do nothing. And so it's important for us to get this into our, not our, just our ears and our brain, but in our heart and into our very bones, that it's when we encounter and are able to confess and admit and even embrace our weaknesses, that's when God shows up and proves himself to be who he is, strong and mighty and powerful. Far too often, people ask the question, well, how come I don't see miracles in my life? How come I don't see God doing powerful things? How come I don't feel like God is talking to me? I hear people talking about how they have devotional time and they spend time in the word and God said something to them. How come I don't have that experience? Can I suggest perhaps that if that you find yourself in that position, not feeling as though you have this fellowship with Jesus or this fellowship with God, could I perhaps ask you to take a look at your life and say, am I somehow relying on my my own strength to get me through the day or have I not repented and confessed of my weaknesses to the Lord and just laid them out in front of him and said, God, you're the one who's strong, not me. Perhaps. Well, here's what we see in second Corinthians chapter 11, 11. We're going to see God's strength in our weaknesses, and then this is going to be the further point that we're going to make today, and I think this is a huge one, important for us to embrace as well. Not only that we see God's strength in our weaknesses, but mark this down, check this, that we trust God's strength in the weaknesses of others. We may come to a point of confession and go, God, I get it, I'm weak, I don't have anything on my own, you be strong for me. We get that for ourselves. But the part that we don't get oftentimes is the way that we trust God to be strong for us. We also have to trust that God is strong in another person's weakness as well. See, we like to pick on the weaknesses of people. I'll, I'll, just, I'll use that as my confession. I like picking on the weaknesses of people. I like finding ways that I can prove that I'm smarter or better than someone else. I may never use those words. I may never say that out loud, but it sure comes out in my actions. 
It sure comes out in how I talk about other religious traditions and how they don't understand things the way that I understand things. You realize that our religious tradition is 500 years old and there are other Christian traditions that are 2,000 years old, right? Be cautious about what you criticize. Be cautious about what you try and be right about. Trust that in the things that we see in weaknesses in other people, that God is strong in those weaknesses as well. He reveals himself in the weaknesses of people. Let's go to the text. My percentage is off. Second Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Here's what it says. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, Accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, and I'm speaking as a fool, Paul would say, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, but I'm a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, meaning with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. What's going on? Why is Paul ranting and raving about all of the trials that he has faced? Is he trying to gain sympathy from the Corinthians? Is he trying to somehow, again, prove his authority as an apostle, one sent by Jesus? Is he trying to show them that, that you know, he can brag along with the best of them? Here's the context. Remember, there were other uh, false teachers who came in after Paul established the church at Corinth who were commending themselves, seeing, look how great we are. Yeah, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, John and Peter and James and all those other guys. But look at what we can do. Look at how good we are. Look at what kind of performance we can put on for you. Look at what kind of show we can give you. Look at how well we speak and, and our oratory skills. 
and the Corinthians, the church sort of got, got, got sidetracked. They started following after these teachers who looked good on the surface, but really sort of had this weird thing where they were like, okay, um, you guys do talk well, but what is this truth that we're supposed to know about Jesus? What is it that you're saying you're here to teach us about? And then these false teachers would go, well, if you give us a little bit more money, then we'll go ahead and tell you what it is that we know about Jesus that you don't know about Jesus. And they would put on this great show and look really good to the eye, but the truth of the matter was these false teachers who were coming into the Corinthians couldn't back up their talk. Their hearts were dark, they were greedy, and they were wicked, and they weren't actually teaching the same truth that the Apostle Paul had taught the Corinthians. And so Paul had to come back in here and correct the Corinthians, and he had to teach them what was true. And so Paul would say that he would never compare himself against these guys that would call themselves super apostles. They were the ones that, there's this movie out right now, I haven't seen it yet, but I think I'm going to go see it. The movie theaters are open, by the way, just so you guys know, that's awesome. Um, it's called Church People, and it's, it's a, the movie is about this mega church who is trying to get more and more attention for itself, and so they're always trying to come up with some sort of gimmick on Sunday mornings that makes the headlines. And at one point, the pastor's in his office talking to someone, and the guy's like, how could we be any bigger than Jesus? Like, how could we make a bigger deal about Easter than the resurrection itself? And an assistant walks in the room with a Superman costume, and the pastor goes, yeah, Superman, that'll fly. And so, like, get it? And so the, the, the point is, is that at church, they're going to try and hoist the pastor up in a Superman costume and make him fly across the stage. Now, I haven't seen the movie, but just that preview alone made me want to go, yeah, I need to go see that. And yes, they're mocking church culture, which I'm 110% of approval of, because the Apostle Paul is 110% in approval of mocking church culture. See, listen again to what he says at the beginning of his rant. He starts off by saying, I'm a fool. I'm, uh, trust me, I, he goes, I know as I start talking like this, uh, he goes, I'm speaking not as the Lord would speak, but I'm going to just tell you my comparison to these super apostles. And, and he says, as I speak, it sound, he goes, I feel foolish even doing it. I feel foolish talking this way. He says, but since you, Corinthians, are willing to listen to fools, those who are really foolish, let me talk like a fool for a little bit. Let me, let me see what the outcome is if I lay out some things for you to understand. If you're willing to talk to fools and listen to fools, let me be foolish a little bit and I'll tell you some things, right? So what he says in the second half of verse 21, again, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, and I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Paul's going to brag He's going to boast. That's why he says, I feel foolish doing this. And he's like, God help me. I don't really want to do this. But you need to see the comparison between someone who's actually devoted to Jesus, actually serving Jesus, actually embracing the hardness of following after the perfection of Jesus Christ, and someone who just talks a good game. He goes, I have to show you the comparison of these things. And so he goes through the list in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And then he jumps into talking about, are they servants of Christ? And all along here, remember, there's this sort of facetious little wink and a nod that he's like, Corinthians, 
wake up. You actually, you know better than this. I shouldn't have to say these things to you, but if, if it's the thing that's going to get through to you, let me, let me use this language almost sarcastically so that you feel the weight of how wrong you've been in following after things that are rooted in the world rather than things that are rooted in the spiritual life that we're called to in Jesus. And so he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. And then here's the list. I love this list. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Paul went to prison for preaching the gospel. Paul went to prison multiple times for preaching the gospel. I'm not sure if I can walk out of the room today without saying this, and I don't like this kind of stuff, but like we live in a culture where our government is starting to target more and more people who are absolutely devoted to Jesus. I'm not going to talk about bills or measures or voting, and all this, but listen, we have to be aware of the culture around us. If, if, if I don't talk about this, then it means that I'm sort of deaf to the reality of what's going, around, uh, going on around us in the world. And the truth is this. And I say this with the joy that Paul says what he's saying. We as Christians are going to begin to encounter persecution in a way that we never have in America before. And I say, praise the Lord. I know that might seem foolish because we as Americans like comfort. I like comfort. I like having the freedoms that I have. I like celebrating the, the fact that our country was based and founded on Judeo-Christian ethics and morals and values and the scripture itself. But I'd be a fool if I didn't recognize the culture around me that says that's happening less and less and less. We're still in way better positions than China and Iran and Iraq and India and Malaysia and Indonesia. We're in a way better place in terms of practicing our faith than those other places are. But here's the thing. Our faith isn't growing like their faith is growing. Our church isn't expanding and exploding the way that the church is in Iran and Iraq. Why? Because they're under persecution and they're being told, you have to make a decision. Are you going to either believe upon Jesus even to the point of death or are you going to give in to the culture around you? Here's what I can say. That's why I say amen to the persecution that we begin to feel as Christians here in America, which is minute in comparison. We know that. But again, it's happening and it's going to happen more and more. And I say amen to that. So be it. Because what I want to see is our faith explode. I want to see our faith grow. I want us to be put in positions of weakness like Paul describes his weaknesses, that he's been imprisoned multiple times for preaching the gospel. I, I, if someone were to walk through the door right now, some legal official that says, you don't have the ability to teach what that Bible says. That's hate speech. My hope and my prayer and my confidence in Jesus would be to say, lock me up. Lock me up. That's, that's what I'm here for. And I ought to obey God rather than men. That's what the apostles did in the book of Acts. They would come before the officials and the government officials and the religious officials, and they would be told, quit talking about Jesus. You don't get to say that name anymore around here. And what would they say? Peter and John. They'd say, hey, we're going to obey God rather than man. 
And in those issues, we see Paul as this example. Great labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Have any of us ever even approached death for the sake of confessing Jesus? No. Talks about receiving the 39 lashes. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, 39. Why would they do 39 and not an even 40? Because the Romans who instituted the whippings and the beatings and, and had gotten um, uh, this type of punishment down to a science knew that if you beat someone with 40 lashes with the cat of nine tails, they'd die. 39, they could still live and have to endure the healing of those wounds. That's sick. But that was how much they wanted to discourage and cause pain to those who would proclaim Jesus as Lord. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Meaning in his missionary journeys, they would be shipwrecked. He floated in the ocean for a night and a day. And then obviously he was in danger from multiple places. I think the one that... that, that hurts me the most is when he says danger from my own people danger from gentiles i get i I, paul says i was a jew growing up and i was a pharisee of pharisees i was of of the lineage of benjamin right like i was i was a jew of jews he goes the gentiles i get it they i was in danger for them i was danger from robbers i was danger from the natural causes he the, the part that just strikes my heart is when he says i was in danger from my own people the people that I love, the people that I have a desire for. Listen, church, understand something. Right now in the Christian church, there's so much backbiting and dissension and argument going on. I pray that we would never be a people who are a danger to a brother or sister in Christ. I pray that we would never have to experience that where where we say, I'm just trying to live out my, I'm just trying to be a follower of Jesus. And some other person who calls themselves a Christian, some other person who says that they believe in Jesus is just taking pot shots at me and just trying to tear down the ministry of what God's doing. I pray that we would never be found in that position. The apostle Paul knew that position. He knew it well and says, this is the danger that I've received. Not to mention all the hardships, the sleepless nights, the hunger and the thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And not only that, but apart from those physical things, he says, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The spiritual, mental, emotional toil of caring for God's people and making sure that they're doing well. This is what Paul brags about. His weakness, his persecution, his suffering. Now get this, like we can read this list and go, oh man, boy, I'm not doing anything for Jesus in comparison to Paul. Jeez, he's really got it dialed in. Where am I at on this stuff? Paul's not saying this stuff to make anyone feel bad necessarily. Remember, he's drawing a contrast between someone who's actually a disciple of Jesus versus someone who just appears good on the outside but doesn't have that root heart of willing to serve Jesus even to the point of death, looking only for their own benefit. And so Paul is, rather than driving the point home um, that it's the Lord who not only calls us to salvation and our ministry, not just that point, 
But what he's pointing to is to say that it's God who sustains us in the midst of the trials of that ministry that we've been called to. Now, we all have the same ministry. Every single person who's a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the same ministry. It's to go out and make disciples. Each one of us is called to look for someone else who doesn't know as much about Jesus and try and teach them what we know. Try and point them to Jesus in all things. We all have the same ministry. Now, the miraculous thing is that within the greater body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, while we all have the same ministry, the Holy Spirit gives to each person a different kind of gifting, some sort of skill, some sort of heart or relationship for someone that is specific. And each one of us is responsible not only to the big mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples, we also have these individual gifts and relationships and ministry opportunities that we're called to. And that's so much of what we're doing when we come together like this is just to go, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? And how we find that out is simply by the context that God has placed us in life. Husbands, wives, parents, childrens. Employers, employees, all of these things, that's, those are our individual missions and God has gifted us in those things. And so listen to this, whatever your ministry is, there's only one way for the enemy to have victory over you. The Apostle Paul would say, if I boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Why? Because later on in chapter 12, which we'll see next week, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says, I show my weaknesses so that Jesus can be strong. Whatever your ministry, there's only one way for the enemy to have victory over you. If you let him. That's it. Whatever your ministry is, if you rely upon Jesus, Jesus is going to be with you no matter how hard of a road you have to walk. No matter how hard it is, if you trust in Jesus and you just lay your weaknesses down before him, he'll be strong for you. You'll be able to endure the things that he has laid out before you. But in your mission, as you encounter trials and temptations and, and, and persecutions, if you let Satan have victory, if you just stop doing the thing you're supposed to be doing, if you stop obeying Jesus, if you stop doing your mission, then you let Satan win. And that's the only way for it to happen is if someone gives Satan permission to have victory. Why? Because we know that Jesus at the cross is already victorious over sin and death. So the only way that Satan can have any kind of victory in your life is if you let him. I want to prove that to you by showing the example of Jesus to you. Turn to John chapter 10, please. <coughs> John chapter 10, that famous chapter where Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd, the one who knows his sheep. The sheep know his voice. They follow him. They won't follow a stranger because they don't know the stranger's voice. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth gospel, New Testament. John chapter 10, beginning down in verse 14. 
Listen to Jesus' words here. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus has power. Jesus has power even in the weakness of the flesh. That was the miraculous thing about Jesus is that he was in the flesh like you and I are. He was tempted by all the things that we are tempted by. And yet in every single thing, he was perfect. He never sinned, not once. This is why we can trust Jesus to be strong in the midst of our weakness to not only have victory, but listen, in this picture that he draws of a shepherd with his sheep, Jesus not only has victory and the power to take up his life, to lay it down and take it up again, which prefigures the resurrection, but Jesus is able to bring his sheep to safety because of the authority that's been given to him by his father. If you're one of Jesus' flock, if you're one of his sheep, his possession, whom he loves and cares for, whom he purchased, the Bible says, with his blood, he purchased your salvation, then you and I can find safety in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of trauma, in the midst of abuse, in the midst of addiction, we can find safety. In Jesus, the enemy can't have victory over you if you are firmly submitted to Jesus's authority in your life. That's why James, in his letter, chapter 4, verse 7, would say, resist the devil and he will, yeah, resist the devil and he'll keep coming back, keep trying again, resist the devil and, and he'll figure out a way to deceive you. No. Resist the devil and he just flees. He has nothing. If you proclaim the victory of Jesus Christ over your life, if you proclaim the blood of Jesus over your life, you're, you're saved. Can, can, we use that word all the time, we're saved. Do we know what that means? Do we, do we get excited about talking about our salvation? The fact that we're free from Satan. We're free from, from the consequences of sin, which the Bible says is death. Yeah, our bodies may die, our physical bodies may perish, but the reality of our salvation is, is that we are going to live eternally with Jesus in resurrected, glorified bodies. This is the result of our salvation. This is the result of the authority of Jesus in our life that even as the devil comes to tempt us, as Satan comes to try and draw us away from God, we simply resist him. We don't have to get in a fist fight with him. We don't have to get in an argument with him. We just tell him no. We don't give him permission. And he has to flee. 
at the name of Jesus, he has to run away. There's power in that name. Now, there's only power in that name if you are his. If you're not Jesus's, if you haven't believed upon him for salvation and trusted him to be your Lord and your master, then you can say the name Jesus all you want. There's no power in that. But when you have given authority to Jesus in your life, when you've surrendered to him and believed upon him for salvation, Jesus has power in your life. The name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus has power. And so what we see in the Apostle Paul rolling off this long list of, of comparisons to say this is what a true disciple looks like. This is what a true apostle looks like versus someone who just puts on a good show and maybe looks good on the outside and maybe sounds good out loud but isn't actually living the example of giving their life for the Lord. Paul uses all of that language and, and, and says, if I'm going to boast in anything, it's not going to be that I know more theology than you. I'm not going to boast that I pray more than you. I'm not going to boast that the Lord uses me to speak in tongues to people. I'm not going to boast that there have been miracles done by my hand. I'm not going to boast of any of those things. I'm not going to brag. If I'm going to brag, if I'm going to talk like a fool, and you'll listen to me, listen, the only thing I'm going to brag about are the weaknesses that I've experienced and in that, I give glory to God because as I'm weak, Jesus Christ gets to be strong. He gets to sustain me and carry me through every single storm of life. So there's one of two situations that we could find ourselves in this morning as a result of what we've heard. One could be quite possibly that you're the weak one right now. Perhaps you find yourself in a position of weakness and you just say, I don't know how to do what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to, to move forward. I don't know how to share the gospel with someone. I don't know how to resist temptation. Every time temptation shows up, I seem to just give in. Maybe you're the weak one right now. The way to have victory, the way to, to, to experience what God actually desires for you to experience in his love and his grace and his mercy for you is for you to surrender yourself to Jesus. It's to say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to forgive my sins, and I believe that you rose from the grave to promise me eternal life. The Bible tells us that if you believe that in your heart and you confess that with your mouth, you make it real in your life. Not just believe it up here intellectually or as an emotion, as a response to a really good song or a good sermon, but you actually believe it and you surrender your life to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm giving up. It's not me. I'm going to follow you. If you're the weak one right now, maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to give yourself to Jesus. You need to ask him to be Lord, master of your life. We've all done a fine job of screwing up our lives on our own. But when we submit ourselves to Jesus and allow him to be Lord over our lives, it's not the promise that everything's going to be perfect, that we're going to win the lottery and drive a nice car or anything else. It's that we have freedom. We have freedom from sin. We have freedom from the effect of sin. And so if you're the weak one this morning, that's what I would recommend to you. Surrender your life to Jesus. 
tell Jesus that you believe in him and that you want him to forgive you and, and for him to be your master. Just tell him, Jesus, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm going to follow you now. Now, for a lot of us who have done that at some point in our life and continue to re, re-devote ourselves, rededicate ourselves to Jesus, perhaps we have in mind someone else that we know who is weak right now. Perhaps we have someone in our mind or in our heart that we're just sort of broken over and we see their weakness and we just, we just want to cry out, Lord, would you be strong for them? See, remember, we know and trust that in our weakness, Jesus is strong. But do we trust that Jesus is also strong in somebody else's weakness? That the thing that he does for us, he'll do for anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. And so perhaps you have someone on your mind right now. One of the things that we are called to in Scripture is to intercede on behalf of others. Where we have someone in our heart and mind and we just say, Lord, they're broken. They're hurting. They don't even know which way is up right now. And we don't have the ability to convince them. We don't have the ability in our knowledge or strength or anything else to change somebody's life. But we know that Jesus does. We're called to intercede. And so for everyone who you're thinking about right now, whether it's yourself or you have somebody else in mind, will you just meditate upon this prayer of intercession? We all should have somebody we're praying for. Think about them now. And pray with me. I sense your beckoning, O Lord, and I willingly respond. Entering your presence to plead on behalf of another, Spirit of God, you alone know the specific needs of the person for whom I am suddenly burdened to intercede. Therefore, guide my prayer. Tune my thoughts, my words, my empathies to articulate your greater heart, your deeper purposes. I yield to your intentions, even unto the breaking of my own heart for that which breaks yours. Through me, O God, may it please you to bring forth effective petition for the one whose condition has so moved your heart that you have now moved mine, calling me to fervent prayer, to cry out, to contend, to do battle on their behalf. Breathe through me, O Spirit, your thoughts and your words. Kindle in me, O Father, your sorrows and consolations. Teach me, O Christ, how to serve and to love by intercession. By your grace, O Lord, intersect our moments with your mercies. Intersect our days with evidence of your grace. Let this burden remain or return as often as you would have me carry it again to you. You are ever at work in this world, so let my compassion be always active and my heart sensitive to your movements, your promptings, and your revelation. Call us, your children, always to care for one another in prayer and in action in our various times of need.